Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, boys and girls, you know the drill. Computers, digital devices of all kinds, away. Ears and minds engaged, or just sleep quietly. Okay, so we are today going to look at the cooler ring. In order to do this, we want to, put, we want to remind ourselves of some of the theory that we saw last week because we're going to see it resurface in practice. So I want to quickly go over some of the things that we saw with respect to Polanyi and with Marx. It won't take us very long. Uh, we noted that the great transformation that Polanyi talks about, what actually is being transformed in the great transformation, it is the market from Polanyi's point of view. Starting with the Industrial Revolution, the market, in, and as he puts it, gets disembedded from society. So we go from being, so we become what we are today, market agents, market citizens. Makes sense. We talked about this last time. We invest in ourselves in order that we may optimize ourselves with respect to our market agency. But the way that we have to see our lives is obviously then through a market logic. The market operates uh, above us, right? We, are, we rely upon the market in order for us to keep ourselves alive. And as he points out in the broad strokes of human history, this is a very recent phenomenon. Generally speaking, societies have not constructed economies, the purpose of which is to place at the top of the economy a market for the distribution of capital, goods, resources, etc. Uh, instead, as he points out, man's economy as a rule has been submerged in his social relationships. And this ties into what we've been observing already, which is that for most of our history, most people have lived outside of a material economy. So it makes sense that outside of the ability to acquire material things, uh, that we would not then need a market, the purpose of which is to distribute resources to create those material things and to distribute them to different people based on their, uh, based on their economic, uh, uh, economic abilities. So we have an example at hand. Recall we talked about that arrowhead exchange. It's my favorite example, but I'll just quickly remind you. That's a great example of a market that's embedded inside of the social function uh, or inside of the social relationships. We have people who are trading arrows. It's an exchange. That means it's a market. In fact, we found out that it's a commodity market. One arrow exchange for another, but each arrow is slightly different because each arrow is individualized or personalized. So there's an exchange market. The purpose of that market is not to generate wealth. We think of a market today as, like, say, wealth optimization or prosperity maximization. The purpose of that market is not to create wealth. The purpose of that market is to maintain egalitarianism so that there is no asymmetric acquisition of prestige based on difference of ability when it comes to things like hunting animals. Because recall that in that society, the prestige that is acquired from killing an animal belongs not to the person who brought the animal down, but the person whose arrowhead is found inside of the animal, which may not actually link to the person who committed the action. So we see that that's a market, the purpose of which is to maintain egalitarianism. We saw that egalitarianism in that context, given the environment, resource environment that they live in, is important to maintain community viability, what, uh, what Lee called their cultural viability. So it's a great example of a market functioning for the purpose of social optimization. And we recall further, using that example, that there were times when groups of hunters would exchange arrowheads with hunters from other groups. So there's not just in-group, but also out-group trading and exchange. What's the point of that? Now you kill an animal, you pull out the arrowhead, it belongs to somebody who's not even part of your group. So it seems inefficient, the prestige is wasted. But we realize that the purpose of that is to create reciprocity, mutualism, a form of community binding, 
which matters in the context of the Kalahari, where you have uneven uh, climatic or weather conditions in any given year. Some parts may have more, some parts may have less, and this creates a symmetry of resource. So in any given season, there might be more food concentrated in the hands of one group versus the hands of another group. Smart, modern thinkers today, we'd say that's an entrepreneurial opportunity, right? Because you have demand, you have supply, so let's create a market, let's sell the meat, right? Let's sell the resources that this community needs, and then we can make some money. But what's the problem with that? If that requires then that communities are in the business of amassing wealth for the purpose of maintaining their existence, even though in the grander scheme of things, there's plenty of resources to go around. So we recall what we argued was, why make a market out of something that's critically important if you can instead relocate the market to something that's much less important? So the Arrowhead market serves not only to reduce the uneven acquisition of prestige, but it also serves to create basis for mutualism between communities so that when one community is in need, they don't actually have to resort to a market mechanism for their survival. And we further recall that that cements the idea of what's called reciprocity. Why does one community come into a camp that's lacking the necessary food for that season with baskets of meat and vegetables or whatever? What's their, ma what's their rationale? What's their motivation? Is it just altruism? Are they just good people? Why would they do that? What explains that behavior? They have a reasonable expectation that that gesture will be reciprocated when they need it. And if you think about it in your own life, when you're in trouble, if you've got some problem going on, do you want to use the cold anonymous market that will help you if you have enough money in your pocket? Or are you likely to call a friend? Who cares about helping you out? The market or people that you know? People that you know. So this is his point. Economies, trading arrowheads is an economy but it's submerged inside the social function. If we think about it in the right way, we can see the purpose of that economy is social optimization, avoiding things like uh, the unequal acquisition of prestige, maintaining egalitarianism, and establishing a basis for reciprocity and mutualism amongst different communities in the context of potential resource asymmetry. So he gives us some examples, and it's important to, to stress that just because the market is embedded inside of the social function, this does not lead to some sort of perfect, wonderful, democratic equality outcome, right? This is not what he is saying. He's simply pointing out that human societies, whatever form they took in the past, tended to have their markets embedded inside the social relationship. So some of them, like the ones we're going to look at today, the Trobriander, will look one way. But another excellent example is the uh, world of ancient Egypt. A primary economic output of ancient Egypt were the enormous pyramids uh, that that economy was able to build. Another economic output of the uh, ancient Egyptians was the extraordinary longevity of their civilization. We don't normally think of that as an economic output, but if you think about it, your ability to establish and maintain a system over a long period of time is essentially an output of your economy. And it's hard to stress, it's hard for us even to imagine how long ancient Egyptian civilization lasted. The Greek historian Herodotus went to visit the pyramids when he was living as a tourist. He heard there were these great things, so he went, like tourists today, went to go look at them. When he went as a tourist in, what, 5th century BCE, we live closer to him than he lived to the time when those pyramids were built. So we are closer to the ancient Greeks than the ancient Greeks were to the actual construction of the pyramids. That means, what another way of saying that is that the, the, the civilization that produced these kinds of monuments lasted for thousands of years, and underpinning that was a social system, but behind that social system was also a system of economic distribution, allowing workers or allowing the labor force to be leveraged in such a way to build these things, moving goods around in such a way 
that uh, these kinds of accomplishments could be made, and that lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Does anyone know what the pyramids are actually for? What the purpose of a pyramid is? The tomb of the it's a tomb of the pharaoh. Why does the pharaoh need such a big tomb? Just a very big man? <coughs> he, was, he was certainly buried with a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stuff. Yeah. But why so big? He needs to be connected with God. Yeah, why does the pharaoh need to be connected with God? What was the pharaoh's role? Represent God. To represent, exactly, to be an intercessor between the, the pantheon of Egyptian gods and the Egyptians themselves. It's an amazing place, ancient Egypt. I, t- I used to TA a class on, on this back way many years ago when I was in graduate school. It's an extraordinary place because if, I don't know if you've been to Egypt, but you can take a little trip down the Nile and you're going down the Nile. The Nile itself is a remarkable feat of nature because the, the water flows from south to north into the Mediterranean. But the winds blow from north to south. So it's got like a built-in superhighway, right? If you want to go one way, you simply go with the current. If you want to go the other way, you hoist your sail. So it makes for very easy uh, navigation. On top of that, the Nile floods very regularly in the Nile Valley, which keeps the soil very fertile and highly productive. So yields, for example, from the Nile Valley are two, three, four times what they are in places like, say, southern Europe, for instance, in equivalent climates. It's extraordinary uh, system. This means they can grow huge amounts of food because of that highly productive built-in fertilizing system. But it also means in order to live in this vi- riverine valley environment, you have to be able to invest in technologies, things like uh, irrigation systems and dams in order to prevent the floods from, from washing everything away. As soon as you need to start building things, you need a hierarchy. That means you're going to need to have chiefs or big men, or as we call them, kings or pharaohs. And in order to have a system of hierarchy that's going to be stable, you're going to need a belief system and that belief system is still can be seen today because when we go to ancient Egypt, what we look at in their, in their temples and in their pyramids are the physical manifestations of the, cosmog- the cosmology and the belief system that, that kept the whole society glued together. Yeah? But the end was like allowed the Egyptians to use the pyramids and create that economic slavery. This, is, this used to be thought because in Genesis we know that the Jews escaped from slavery in Egypt. However, not everything in the Bible is true. No, but not, not only that. So that is an interesting point. It's actually, well, think about it. Is a slave economy likely to last thousands of years? Romans. The Romans did not last thousands of years. They lasted maybe 700 years. It's a good long time. It's a slave, but think about it. Is a slave economy a very a, a stable basis for a society? No, but over the centuries, it keeps like, reoccurring. Slavery as an institution is a recurring, apparently human beings, yes, when they see other human beings, sometimes they think person, and sometimes they think property, and you never know where that's going to fall. That's true. But in fact, no, it was thought indeed for a long time that the, the pyramids were built with slave labor. But now it is understood that in fact it was not built with slave labor, it was built with something that we call corvée labor, the same labor that we used to build the, the uh, cathedrals here in Europe, which was labor owed to the state, essentially, or labor owed to authority. Uh, And the idea was that if you were a peasant farmer in Egypt, you would have to contribute a certain amount of labor and also material to the state in order to maintain this apparatus. Essentially, the same way that we contribute to the state today in paying our taxes. Same kind of idea, except their taxes were owed both in food, grain, as well as in labor. So taxes in kind. Uh, And we know this because we found the workmen villages. And in fact, we found quite a lot of records that document the labor structures that were there. They had a currency in Egypt but they didn't have the kind of money that we think about. What do you think workers were paid in in ancient Egypt? Grain. Grain. That's good. That gives them their bread. You don't want them to wash it down with, right? Like you've been out there a hot day slaving in the sun. What are you going to want? Piece of bread and? Water. what's Water. What's better than water? Beer. 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 Exactly. So 
bread and beer was the basic, uh, the basic salary of, of workers. And when you look at the tabulations, they have these structures of who does what and how much bread and how much beer do they get. So it was a little microeconomy built around that. Yeah. Well, uh, the pyramids were built about 5,000 years ago, 5,500 years ago, so 3,000, 3,500 to about 1,000 BCE. They had beer. Yes, beer is very ancient. How can man live without his or her beer? Come on. Anyway, all this to say, Egypt is one of the most unequal societies. The pharaoh had enormous concentrations of power. Literacy was confined to only a very small elite. Uh, they had a temple class. So it's not like this idea of a market being submerged inside the social relation necessarily means that people had good lives or that there was a, uh, egalitarian structures. But it simply means that when there, was, when there was trade of the resources being produced from the Nile Valley for the purpose of supporting the state, the function of that trade was to support the larger structures that made that society viable, and not just viable, but viable for many thousands of years, as we see evidenced in the archaeological record. So this is the, this is the point, then, that he, that he wants to argue, is that there are these different models for how we distribute goods using a market that's submerged inside the social function, and broadly speaking, he, he divides them into two. One is reciprocity, and the other is redistribution. Reciprocity, broadly, not always, but broadly, uh, refers to uh, communities that are generally somewhat smaller. And that's the kind of economic exchange that we find inside, for instance, the Arrow Exchange System. That market is designed to help anchor or cement reciprocal exchange. The other alternative is you bring all of your stuff to one place, and then somebody distributes it out. And that's the notion of redistribution. Either way, whether reciprocal or redistributed, the idea is that the purpose of economic activity is to support the social relations of the society in which it is found. Once the market becomes disembedded, once you move into a material economy, you can see that you can then rupture that fundamental logic. And no better example to hand than the experience of our good pal, a person like you and me, someone who cares about you personally, I refer to Jeff Bezos, and his wife, or should I say his ex-wife, Mackenzie. So Jeff Bezos uses his money to do what? Hair transplants, some not very obvious facial surgery, makes himself look good, right? What else? Do you think he has a yacht? Lots of nice houses. He went to space, right? He built himself, talking about mega priapism, he built himself a gigantic suggestively shaped object, put himself inside of it and blew himself up into space, yes. Exactly. So, like, let's call them ego-driven projects. Spending his money, I, my name is Jeff, I like to spend money on me, kind of thing. So he was married to this woman named McKenzie, McKenzie sorry. Uh, she's largely credited with being at least partially, if not at least half, responsible for the success of Amazon, because she's the one who helped set it up back in 1998 or whenever it got started. Anyway, they divorced, so she got half, half of all the Amazon billions. And Mackenzie, and I'm, draw, I'm drawing a blank on her last name because she doesn't go by Mackenzie Bezos anymore. So. But she is going to be, if she isn't already, one of the world's leading, probably the leading um, philanthropist because she's taken all this money and she's simply giving it away. I made all this money and I don't want to hang on to it. I'm not interested in blowing myself up into space or acquiring mega yachts and so on. So she's making endowments to colleges and funding NGOs and all these other kinds of initiatives. Two very different ways to think about what you can do with surplus resources. You can acquire it for yourself, hoard the wealth, and sort of live a very good life, or you can return it back in this sense. Well, in our context, to translate this back into Polanyi terms, someone like her with a lot of money, or to be honest, someone like Jeff Bezos, who acquired all this wealth, that's certainly possible inside of pre-modern societies, 
But once you've acquired that wealth, what you don't do is hold on to it. The function of acquiring wealth includes, by extension, by necessity, a redistributive mechanism. You acquire wealth for the purpose, then, of redistributing it. But that's not some kind of communism. What do you get in redistributing your wealth? What do you think you get? Well-being of the society. Secure social well-being? Could be. But that's not what you get personally. Recognition. Recognition. And if you get enough recognition, who do you become? Famous. Famous. Powerful. Exactly. If you think about it, in a pre-modern, pre-monetized economy where what your wealth is counted in is like agricultural goods and so on that are going to spoil, it makes a lot of sense that when people are bringing you this stuff, you have a big feast, you hold a free dinner for all of your friends because otherwise it just goes to waste. But in so doing, you acquire prestige, you acquire power, you acquire authority. And that is genuinely a social relation as opposed to having a gigantic house uh, living inside of material comfort. So this is the Polanyi's point in the ancient past. That's what got transformed. We don't live inside of this kind of market logic anymore. And so the two systems that we'll see very quickly is you can have reciprocity, where you have a world of resources. Inside the group, you'll have a sharing economy, or some kind of, some kind of system of distributing uh, resources amongst the group. And then between groups, you'll have these mechanisms of reciprocity. They'll typically be, they can be egalitarian. They, can, they don't have to be egalitarian. But the idea is that one group reciprocates with another group outside of a market logic. They're not doing it for the purposes of maximizing wealth, but instead for maximizing social outcomes. Uh, or similarly, if you have a redistributive system, typically you'll have some, some head person inside of the society. Let's call them a chief. The chief is owed tribute. You have to give money to the chief. The chief doesn't hoard it, doesn't hold on to it, but instead distributes it back out to other people. The pharaoh was paid huge amounts of money every year, not money, sorry, resources every year in grain. There were state granaries, but then there was a pharaonic system that distributed from those state granaries to all of these classes of people inside of Egyptian society. So the pharaoh was like a gigantic economic redistribution scheme, and as a result of this became very important, and when he died, he deserved a gigantic pyramid, so it was easier for him to go and talk with the gods. Okay, that was our discussion. That's very quickly our plan. Let me move to Marx. By the way, have you seen, did you see the ancient pyramids? Have you been there? No, I'm planning. Are you planning on going? Yeah. When you go to the ancient pyramids, there's something very interesting. They, dig, they dug it up a little while ago. It's called a solar boat. It's literally a boat next to the pyramids. What was it for, do you think? Why would they build a boat right next to the pyramids? Indeed, it was to help the pharaoh move from this world into the next. And when it was first discovered, they thought it was like, oh, it's sort of a symbol, right? Like, but, no, but then they re- there were the supplies on the boat. There was, no, they expected him physically to like, come down and get in the boat and then go off to the other world and come back, right? We can't get our heads around the literalism of this. When I was teaching that class, I remember there was a document. It was amazing. There was some guy, and it was during the time of Ramses II, and this Egyptian guy had gone to Jordan which is not that far away as the crow flies, but if you're in Egypt and it's like Nile, desert, desert, will seem like a long way away. So he'd gone to Jordan and he wrote a postcard back to his like, I don't know, mom or something, like, dear mom, wish you were here, that kind of thing. And we, this postcard, I call it a postcard, this letter is preserved. And he was writing about all the amazing things he saw, like as we tend to do, we now post them on Instagram, but it's like, look at these amazing sites. You will never guess what the most amazing thing was in Jordan that he encountered, right? Like, there were lots of mind-blowing things, but one was just mind-blown when he found it when he went to Jordan. It was the sun. 
He had always assumed that the sun was a specifically Egyptian thing, right? Like, comes up this way, goes over the Nile, sets over there. Clearly an Egyptian artifact, right? The Egyptian god. And he goes to Jordan. He's like, fuck, they have the sun too. How is that possible? Right? Never, was never the same afterwards. Years of counseling. Okay. Let me remind you about Marx, because we're going to be using both the Polanyi and the Marxist framework. Okay, so let's quickly remind ourselves what we said about Marx, because Marx made the observation, Polanyi wrote after Marx, but they kind of go together, right? Which is that the, the modern market, the market society that we live in, is in the business of producing commodities. So our prosperity is measured in terms of material consumption, and the material, or the material things that we consume are commodities. We might extend it to non-material things, like vacations, in a sense, are a form of commodity. So you may recall that for Marx, the, the basis for wealth inside of a capital market system is derived from the exchange of commodities. When we look around, and this is how we think of ourselves today, if you think about your own prosperity, it will not likely be in terms of the uh, the social elements that define your prosperity, how good, you know, what kind of solid friendships you have, and this kind of thing, you might, that will be important to you. But in terms of what we think of as prosperity, remember that the comparison between the solid's objectively low standard of living of people living as hunter-gatherers versus our objectively high standard of living, that what your definition of prosperity will be, how big is your house, and is it in a nice part of town? What kind of car do you drive? What kinds of shoes are you wearing? Right? So in other words, we're thinking through the, the, in, through the lens of the quality of the material consumption that our socioeconomic status permits us. That's our concept of the prosperity that we afford ourselves. Self-evidently, we're now, that's an example of the kind of human thinking that emerges when you disembed the market from its social relations, from its social function. So no longer are you thinking my prosperity is measured by how many close relationships I have, but instead through this material lens. And I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the function of this transformation that's taken place. So for Marx, however, there is a problem in all of this, and that was because in this concept of commodities, we have lost sight of what creates the value that underlies this prosperity. Recall he talks about the use value and exchange value for something to be a commodity. You have to both be able to use it and be able to exchange it. So every commodity has a use and exchange value. And with an exchange value, it has the equivalent in relative form, which is essentially the expression of its proportionality, how much of commodity A for how much of commodity B, which gets us into a mindset in which we're thinking constantly of what we can make, what we can produce, in terms of its relative value to something that somebody else can produce. I can make a table, and instead of just seeing it as a nice object for me and my friends to have dinner off of, I can also see it as the equivalent of four chairs that someone's falling out of at the moment. And that's the notion of this equivalent versus relative value. So the, the commodity ends up with these two forms in the Marxist terminology, the natural form, what it's for, eating dinner off a table, and the exchange form, what can I, what can I get for it, right? And from the, when, we, when we start from this level, remember that the first thing that Marx does is he makes money disappear from the system because money is imaginary, we realize that the value of all of this prosperity comes ultimately from human labor. It's not natural. 
natural world doesn't organize itself into a system of commodity exchange. So it's all based on human labor inputs. That's what makes, that's what gives something the value that it has. A carpenter committing her labor to making a table or somebody committing their labor to making an iPhone or whatever it may be. Essentially what we're doing when we're exchanging commodities is we're exchanging different types of labor. We're exchanging human labor for human labor. And recall that Marx, to solve the problem of different types of human labor and the problems of different levels of competence. He talks about labor in the concrete versus labor in the abstract, labor in its complex and simple form, and socially necessary labor time. And the idea of that is doing a little bit of math to say that whatever it is somebody is making, whether they're doing something simple like making a chair or they're doing something very, very complex like making a semiconductor, we can always express it at some basic level as a human labor input taking a certain necessary amount of time that then is exchanged across a market interface. But, of course, that's inconvenient because we can't live in a world of many, many, many commodities constantly being expressed proportionally one to the other. So we need a different kind of commodity, a special commodity, a commodity where the the use, or let's say its natural form and its exchange form are the same thing. What's that commodity called? What's the special commodity that we come up with? Money, very good. So money is the universal commodity, that thing which, as a convenience, allows us to express the proportionality of any other commodity. And so this is fine, right? Money is very simple. The point is, it doesn't have an actual use value outside of its exchange value. You can't use money except for exchange. That is its use form. And that reminds us that fundamentally, money is imaginary. It has no actual wealth, or or it doesn't capture any value in and of itself. It's simply a shorthand. It's a convenience for expressing the value that exists elsewhere, and that value ultimately comes from human labor. However, as we expand the system of exchange, what happens to the social relations inside that system? What happens to the idea of human labor as value? It disappears so that we start to think of a commodity as having a value intrinsic in and of itself. A phone is worth X. We don't think of it in terms of a human labor input, We just think of it in terms of its money form. So a phone is worth 1,000 euros, or a a set of sheets is worth 100 euros. And so then we start to imbue, we give the the commodity itself this property of value outside of or beyond its actual source of value, which is human labor. We lose sight of human labor. And so for Marx, this is a critical observation, because once we lose sight of human labor, one of the things that we can do after that is we can then commoditize human labor. Human labor becomes just another commodity, something that can be exchanged in the marketplace. And sadly, or not so sadly, depending on your perspective, that's the situation that we in this room all face. We all exist in a world of commoditized commoditized labor, right? We all have to go and exchange our labor for a wage in a marketplace, and that market works best when our labor is substitutable or replaceable. How much modern innovation is, is committed to the idea of reducing how many people you need to make something because in order to get people, you have to pay them, and that entails cost, that reduces profits, etc. So this is the problem for Marx, and we we finished up with that little experiment last time. If you had to confront the conditions under which people were working to make the things that you consume, what would your pattern of consumption look like? We noted already, for instance, no one would want to eat a steak if they had to watch a 30-minute video about the awful conditions in which factory... Uh, beef is raised, let alone slaughtered, right? We just don't want to see it, or chickens, or dairy farms, or whatever, right? We know it's there. We know it's bad. I just don't need to see it. 
And actually, it goes worse than that. We want actively to be lied to, do we not? Because when we go to the supermarket and we pull out a container of milk, a liter of milk, what do we want to see? What have the good marketing people done for us to make, us, to make our lives a little less guilty? What have they put on the front of that, that milk package? Happy cow munching grass in the fields, right? Whereas we all know perfectly well, that's not the life any cow has had to produce that milk, right? They're tiny little pens being force-fed to produce the most quantity of milk they can before eventually they get slaughtered and turned into dog food. But we don't want to see that. Happy cows, please. I'll take my happy cows, etc. Similarly, when we buy an iPhone, we don't want pictures of factories with suicide nets in front of them. No, thank you. If I have to put a picture of somebody like making an iPhone, I'll take some nicely dressed engineer with her lab coat and maybe some friends, smiling, happy, relaxed, etc. Right? That's I, I know it's not true, but be honest, it's it's just easier for me that way, right? So the point is we because we don't have to come into contact with the human reality of the value source, this allows this allows the expansion of a material economy to take advantage of the asymmetries that exist inside of different jurisdictions. Western consumers can use Western purchasing power to buy products that are made outside of Western values. And that allows us then to expand our level of prosperity. And that makes a lot of sense if you're thinking about your prosperity not in terms of human suffering, but in terms of material wealth. How many things can I own for the amount of money that I make? So the fetishism that Marx identifies at the end of that first chapter, a concept which he doesn't very de- define very well even for himself. He never returns to the topic across the remaining 3,900 pages of the book and is, I think, an idea he had. He put it in, and then he didn't really know what to do with it. But I think, it was my reading of it, that what he's saying is, because at the time he was writing, there was this, a lot of literature around the so-called fetishism of primitive tribes. We noted that in this context, a fetish is not some sort of sexual kink you may have. A fetish means imbuing something with a property that it does not have. And we gave the example of somebody who kneels before a cross. A carpenter can make a cross, right? As soon as I hang it in a church and come, someone comes along and then uh, bows before it and offers up prayers to God, that's an example of fetishistic behavior because the cross has a meaning based on the belief of the person who's viewing it. It doesn't make the meaning in less real, but it's, uh, it's creating a property inside the object that the, the object itself does not have. So for Marx, the idea that we say that a good is worth a certain amount of money, the, the re-expressing the value of the good through its money form, for Marx, is a, fetishizing, a fetishized relationship with commodities because we're giving it a value that it doesn't really have. The real value is actually the human labor that goes, that goes into it.